0: Today we're celebrating the 100th episode of Green Pulse, and what better way to mark the occasion than taking a deep dive into the oceans, the planet's most important and greatest expanse of life. And without the oceans, humanity wouldn't exist. But like the rest of the planet, the oceans are in trouble. They're suffering from pollution overfishing and the impacts of climate change from rising ocean temperatures to acidification yet lots of things can and are being done to reverse the damage for example nearly 200 nations recently agreed to conserve and protect 30 percent of the world's oceans by 2030. and nations also recently agreed on a treaty to protect biodiversity on the high seas so has the tide turned for the world's oceans. With us today is Dr. Francesco Ricciardi, Senior Environment Specialist at the Asian Development Bank, who is an expert in ocean biodiversity.
1: Welcome to the show, Francesco. Thank you very much, David. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So, let's start off with two key questions. Why are the oceans so critical to life on this planet, and in what ways do we all benefit from
1: healthy oceans? We can start just with the numbers. And uh, the oceans occupy 70% of the planet's surface, and they provide us, in average, with 6% of the intake of proteins that we took. For 3 billion people, this value reached 20% of of the average intake of proteins. But not only, that; they have absorbed 30% of the CO2 that we produce from the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, and uh, 90% of the heat. That is due to increase, the increasing greenhouse gas emissions. The ocean help to shape the uh, hard claim climate and local, regional, or planetary scale. And the biological life as we know it has evolved from the oceans. And the biological diversity which is made by billions of biological interconnections between the million of species that inhabit the ocean is still so much unknown about it. And there is still a lot to study about. But I would say also the numbers tell just a part of the whole story about the oceans. You know, Through a whole history, we, the oceans have served as a highways for exploration, trade, and cultural exchange. And if you think probably about an explorer, the first person you may think about is a mariner or a sailor. So not only artists, poets, and writers, uh, they have drawn inspiration from the ocean using maybe as a metaphor of the death of the human emotions and the mysteries of life. Uh, you can think about Herman Melville, uh, Ernest Hemingway, Pablo Neruda, Hokusai and his great wave painting. So the human inner itself is connected to the ocean very deeply. This rhythm of tides and the waves and the endless horizon is always been interpreted as a symbol of the life cyclical nature as a connection to something which is greater than us mm-hmm. and we will have an occasion to celebrate them soon. This is June 8 is the World Oceans Day.
0: And what are the risks from the damage that we're doing to oceans, You know, ranging from overfishing or plastic pollution, carbon emissions, which you've already mentioned, and warming oceans, of course. The oceans are storing up all this heat, which is going to be a problem going forward. There's a lot of impacts that we're um, you know, causing. Um, so tell us a little bit more about that and why that's... Basically, we're storing up trouble for the future. Yeah, that's... uh a very sad
1: story (laughs) to be uh, told. Um, The the flow of materials and the energy that we are imposing on the oceans is incredibly wrong. We take out from the oceans an unsustainable quantity of resources, uh, either seafood or other materials, and we gave gave them back untreated sewage, chemical pollution, plastics, you you name it. And overfishing that you mentioned is uh, creating a real ecosystem shift where commercial species are almost fully exploited all around the world. We are talking about, uh, I think, approximately 100 million tons of catches per year. That's just a rough estimate, considering that 20 to 25% of these catches are not really properly reported. Even decisions on the allowable quotas, fishing quotas, they're uh, still more, more, more a political decision than a science, bacon, one. so on. And some fishers are really beyond repair. And ironically, without public subsidies, a large part of this fishing activity will be uneconomical, and um, according to a there is a, reg- a recent uh, global uh, study on uh, on subsidy on global fisheries, and the author find out that around 35 U.S. dollar billion U.S. dollar per year are spent on f- subsidies, and 60% are capacity enhancing subsidies that then they contribute to overfishing. So uh, the same study demonstrated that the large distant Fleet, so the fleet of vessels that go are very far away to fish, maybe in international waters, receive 4 billion US dollars per year as well. and So, luckily, but unfortunately, the news went a bit under the news radar. Um, the World Trade Organization adopted a long awaited fishery subsidy agreement last year and will hopefully take effect as the um, parties will ratify it. And kudos to Singapore to be one of the first to ratify this. Uh, this uh, agreement. So I have spent a significant part of my life underwater in the last uh, 30 plus years. So either for work or for pleasure, and I dive a lot for scientific reason or just to take pictures. And the ecological shift I was talking about before is real. So I, I grew up in the Mediterranean Sea, where I learned to swim and I spent life of my childhood um, observing this underwater life. It's almost devoid of fish, especially outside of uh, nature reserve. In Asia here, in the core of Coral Triangle between the Philippines, Indonesia, and some other Southeast Asian countries, it's still very difficult to see large fishes like groupers or sharks because they have been completely fished out, even inside marine reserves. So it's, it's incredible what they are doing to the ocean. So there are very visible changes. They are more subtle, but unfortunately not less dangerous. Other changes, the changes that are happening at the chemical level of the water, The increase in uh, CO2 concentration is shifting the acidity of the water, which is increasing in a phenomenon that is called ocean acidification, is one of the evil twins of climate change. But the organisms like corals or shells, but also microscopic organisms that use calcium bicarbonate to build their shell, will literally dissolve once the pH will reach a critical threshold. And these are unknown and possibly terrible consequences for the whole food chains, for biodiversity, fishers, and many other aspects. And add to the mix the chemical pollution coming from pesticides, fertilizer, toxic chemical, pharmaceuticals, and their new favorite carrier, which are microplastics. So the general landscape is not very happy.
0: Now, of course, you, um, as you say, you've, you've spent a lot of time in the water, and you're also uh, well known for your... Wildlife and particularly underwater photography. So you get to see in many areas the impacts, but also, uh, you know, the pictures also show that there are still pockets of biodiversity. So it's not, it's not, it's not entirely a hopeless narrative. So, what do you think are the best solutions going forward? You know, would it be better surveillance and management of fisheries, creating more marine protected areas, and ensuring those protected areas are you know properly managed? Uh, and of course, cutting carbon emissions. Maybe just take us through some of these key solutions.
1: Yeah, that's a, a very important question, and and it's very difficult to answer which are the best solution. I think we should start addressing the really the overarching problem that affects not only the oceans but the whole planet. So the human population growth and consumption is increasing the demand for resources, including marine resources, and generating waste and pollution that at the end end up in the ocean. So what we really need, I think, is a paradigm shift. So one where we move from overconsumption as an indication of wealth into regenerative economies that not necessarily will increase the global or national GDP. And unfortunately, most of these solutions are not very appealing for investors and governments because they are not bankable. So, they are not giving immediate financial returns. You you made a mention of MPA. Marine protected areas are a very important solution, but especially if they are interconnected and they reach a minimum, a minimum threshold. So, the problem is that establishing them and patrolling them costs money enough. From a pure financial perspective, even if you have, of course, additional incomes from tourism, um, from ecological activities inside the marine protected areas, dredging or fishing them out will always make more money out of it you know? so even if they have demonstrated they have massive importance for biodiversity and fisheries, so environmental and well-being policies like like marine pro- establishment of marine protected areas need to be supported regardless of the impact of gdp another example is the so-called nature-based solution so there are a hybrid solution that you they use nature as the basis for the solution for example for coastal resilience and coastal protection so instead of building a giant concrete seawall, uh, you use locally sourced material and you restore coastal vegetation you try to restore coral reefs to avoid damage due to climate change impact like storms or uh, sea leveling cry so in this case you'll probably spend less money but you will have a, a significant co-benefits in terms of biodiversity and, and carbon sequestration, but they won't have the same effect on GDP. So another thing, individual choices, they matter too. So what, what we decide to eat is a powerful market force. So we have, I mean, at least some of us, have the incredible privilege of being able to choose what to eat and what to buy, and I believe that with privilege also comes responsibility of, of choosing ethically
0: yes i mean that's definitely right I mean, the power of eight billion people making individual choices is is a very powerful sort of signal so but just just returning to marine protected areas which i think only make up probably less than one percent of the world's ocean area at the moment but the the recent high seas treaty uh that was agreed at the united nations of course has sketched out a process to create new protected areas but that would, of course, require consensus from a lot of governments to do so. So how do you see this working? And do you think it could eventually be a big boost for biodiversity in the oceans if, you know, once the treaty actually is, is fully ratified
1: and gets underway? Yes, it was um, indeed a very big news, and rightfully so. So the High Seas Treaty is really a landmark agreement. And it aims to protect the biodiversity and ecosystem services to the high seas that are the ocean base you know, beyond natural jurisdiction and they cover almost half of the planet's surface. So it took more than a decade, I think, of negotiation to get this approved. But once it will be ratified, it will allow the establishment of MPAs and other conservation measures in the high seas. Um, and it will also regulate the access uh, and benefit sharing of the marine resources, the genetic resources, for example, It will ensure also environmental impact assessment for activities that may affect the high seas. Singapore had a very important part of it as the ambassador was the president of the talks and announced the agreement. Now, the treaty will need to be ratified by at least 50 countries before it can enter into force. We still have some work to do. Until then, it's unfortunately just just on paper. It's just, just theory.
0: Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. And now back to our podcast episode. Let's talk about you. I mean, you're obviously a, a talented and a well-recognized photographer, but of course, you have a very you know you know leading sort of scientific role at the Asian Development Bank. So maybe give us an idea of some of the work that you're currently doing.
1: Thank you. Yeah, unfortunately, I'm not. I'm not a photographer by profession. Even if I would like to. <laughs> in ADB, uh, I mostly work on, on two fronts. And one is uh, making sure that the projects that are financed by the bank are following good environmental quality standards, and that's key, to avoid or mitigate potential negative impact that can uh, come out from them. Also, in some countries, the institutional capacity in environmental assessment, environmental management is relatively low. So. We, I try to help them in making the project better and sustainable from an environmental and social perspective. I can, for example, give you example of roads where we uh, we made sure that where there was ecological connectivity uh, between two areas uh, crossed by the road, using structure to allow the passage wildlife, uh, or even re- renewable energy plants or transmission lines that have considered impact on local bats or migratory birds population. So it is challenging because sometimes you need to work around trade-off between economic viability and environmental uh, risks, but it's also very rewarding when you are able to, uh, to make a positive impact. The second part of my job is more on a proactive environmental agenda, for example, now I'm managing a large regional project which is helping innovation and development of nature-based solution for coastal resilience, and we have projects spreading from the Pacific to Indonesia, India, Pakistan, all of them focusing on a nature-based solution for coastal resilience. So I can mention a couple of them. In Fiji, for example, we are helping uh, some coastal community in designing and building nature-based seawall that, coupled with mangrove restoration and other natural enhancement will protect this community from flooding. Um, In the Republic of Marshall Island, we are helping two local communities in two small atolls to develop what is called the Rayman log process, which is an approach that promotes the cultural insights held by local leaders and communities in association with scientific studies and surveys on the local environment to develop community-led conservation areas.
0: Oh, that's great, yes. So uh, certainly Singapore can relate to some of those projects. Certainly enhancing you know mangroves in, in some parts of Singapore is 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 a is a key sort of adaptation or resilience strategy for, for the coastline. And and of course building living seawalls is another. There's been quite some work done on that, as I think you know. So quite positive examples of what you can do at least to enhance nature but also adapt to climate change, or at least make yourself more resilient anyway. And and just speaking on that. The ADB, Asian Development Bank, of course, has this $5 billion Healthy Oceans Implementation Plan between 2022 and 2024. Maybe tell us a little bit more about this program and its aim to bolster the resilience of oceans and the development of what's called the blue economy. And what is the blue economy?
1: The the blue economy is a concept that let's say, it refers to the sustainable use of ocean resources for economic growth for improved livelihoods and a general ecosystem health. This blue economy encompasses various sectors and activities that or on or affect the oceans, like fisheries, aquaculture, tourism, shipping, energy, biotechnology, waste management. So the blue economy recognized also the Cultural, social, environmental values of the ocean for the human well-being that we have also discussed at the beginning of our talk. So it's a pretty broad concept. So the ADB plan was uh, launched in 2019, and it aims to expand financing and assistance for ocean health and marine economy up to five billion dollars on 2024. So this plan has four implementation priorities. One is coastal resilience that we briefly mentioned before. Another one is plastic-free oceans, so accelerating actions to reduce mass plastic marine plastic pollution and try to move into a transition into a circular economy. Also sustainable seafood and ocean finance. So all these areas are, of course, interconnected, and um, the plan is very ambitious, but we are progressing very well, and we already committed about 98% of these five billions to... Um, Blue economy and the uh, ADB plan for Healthy oceans. So, uh, just
0: a final question, and that's more of a, I guess, one, one of a growing concern. I guess it's, it's. Um, I wish it was there was more sort of happy news, but it's of course it's the growing threat from climate change. You know, there's been a lot of concern in recent uh, weeks over the sharp spike in global ocean surface temperatures, uh, which still remain elevated. Now, this could be linked, of course, to the evolving. El Nino that most weather agencies now expect to occur or to really get underway by about September or so so are we likely to see more marine heatwaves over the coming year um, globally and particularly in southeast asia and, and how will this affect the region um, you know the coral reefs here are already been affected by you know bleaching episodes in the past and and obviously damage as well from overfishing or even Blast fishing, for example. So what's ahead for us in terms of ocean warming and El Nino?
1: This is indeed a very worrisome uh, situation that we're dealing with. But uh, let me answer at the beginning with a bit of caution here. So we should try of not repeating the same mistake that most of climate change deniers make. So using short temporal scale variation or anecdotal examples to argue that climate is not changing or, or is inside the normal variability of this of the system. So El Niño is a really natural climate phenomenon that occurs when you know the tropical pacific becomes warmer than normal and it is going to affect the atmospheric circulation and water patterns around the world creating sometimes higher water temperature than let's say average. However, it is true that most climate models are forecasting an increase in, in global uh, sea surface temperature, and, and in general an increase in the probability of the occurrence of this uh, heatwaves event. This is in addition of the national variability. So it's true, the models say that ma- marine heatwaves are increased worldwide in recent years, uh, both in frequency and intensity. This is an undoubtedly an impact of climate change. If this specific uh, heat wave they are experiencing now is related to climate change, we don't know. But of course, we should we should be worried about. Well, um, for example, according to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration from the U.S., so the global sea surface temperature um, there is an anomaly. There is a reach, a record high of about zero point eighty eight. Celsius degrees above last century average. That was last, last November, right? and this is higher than ever. This number, numbers really look small. No? No, this is like, w- w- what's about 0.9 degrees Celsius? No? Why is so worrisome? No? But we know that in previous examples, uh, coral reefs, worldwide, but especially in Southeast Asia, have experienced severe of what's called bleaching event when the coral becomes completely white because they they, they just dump the microalgae that help them to survive. When it's too hot, the coral cannot have this algae inside anymore, so they, 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 they spit them out. Um, they can recover if the temperature goes back to the normal, but if the heat wave is too long, uh, the, the corals are, are probably unfortunately dying. So this event of bleaching happened already in 1998 in 2016, so, considering how high were the temperatures in, in the last year, we expect further bleaching events uh, event soon. So, coral bleaching can have dramatic cascading effect on the reef ecosystems and in all associated biodiversity and ecosystem services that are given to humans. And all the coastal ecosystems in Southeast Asia are very and, and dramatically exposed to climate change and, in particular, to global heat waves.
0: So in summary, I guess there's a lot of work for humanity, you know, to do to reverse you know, damage to the oceans and to also, you know, try to adapt you know, to the impacts of, of climate change and the existing impacts of pollution and, and so forth. You know. Otherwise, I guess the future is not so great for the oceans, if that's right.
1: So yes, you're right. The oceans are in danger uh, and and we, we have the chance to do something good. Uh, to protect them from from all the, the, the damage that we are producing now. And it will involve governance, uh, it will involve personal choices, it will involve probably also shifting a bit our lifestyle. But I believe that the benefit that we'll receive uh, in future are, are really worthwhile.
0: Great. Thank you very much, Francesco. Uh, thanks so much for being our guest today. It's been a pleasure. Well, that's a wrap for this 100th episode of Green Pulse. Former Straits Times environment and science correspondent Audrey Tan created Green Pulse in late 2018. And since then, we've interviewed some of the world's top scientists, leading UN officials, sustainability influencers, and many others. So we'd like to thank you for your continued support and listening. The next episode will be out in two weeks' time.